Well, it'd be really helpful to have your Bibles open still. So Isaiah chapter 36. We're actually looking at four chapters today. Well, we're focusing on 36 and 37, and we can have a sneak look into 38 and 39 as well. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, it'd be great to have that open. There's also an outline on the back of the news. So if that's helpful, would you uh, please have a look at those? There's some translation points in Korean and Dinka too. But right now, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious Lord, please help us to understand more and more of your trustworthiness that we might cling to you and to you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapters 36 and 39 of, or chapters 36 to 39, really take a central place in the book, acting as a bridge between the two halves. So in the first half, the major threat to God's people is the Assyrians. God has warned his people that they will face his judgment. God has promised his people that he will judge the Assyrians. But right now, the Assyrians have laid waste to much of the northern kingdom, and they stand right at the gate of Jerusalem. That's the context as we come into chapter 36. But by the time we get to the end of the bridge, that's towards the end of chapter 39, we discover that the threat to God's people is now the Babylonians. The Babylonians who will defeat Jerusalem and carry God's people into exile. So from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, from one crisis to the next. That's the predicament that God's people find themselves in. The Assyrians are on the doorstep. The Babylonians are coming next. And the person, the person who is in the hot seat, standing right at the centre, is King Hezekiah. And the question and focus is, in whom do you trust? In the face of threat, with the reality of disappointment, when you're not sure if God is in charge, is enough, or would deliver on his promises, to whom will you cling? That's the question Hezekiah faces. Actually, that's the question we all face. Hezekiah, in many ways, especially compared to his father, Ahaz, who was really quite disastrous, Hezekiah has been incredibly faithful. He set about pointing the people back to the Lord. He embarked upon a campaign of reforming the worshipping life of the community. And, of course, he has really good reason personally to be faithful. Not only has God promised that the Lord will be vindicated, not only has God promised that he will save a people for himself, not only has God promised that he will indeed send the ultimate king in the future, but Hezekiah, in the face of grave illness, has had a very personal experience of the graciousness and the faithfulness of God. We read about that in chapter 38. Actually, chapters 38 and 39, just to be a little bit confusing, um, actually occur before, chronologically, chapters 36 and 
37. So this whole unit is not in chronological order. But actually, chapters 38 and 39 are a flashback that give context for what happens next for the Babylonians. And so we read that before the Assyrians come to attack Jerusalem, God actually healed Hezekiah, gave him an additional 15 years of life, only then for Hezekiah to try and buddy up with the Babylonians, and you read about him even showing the Babylonians all the treasury in every part of, of the kingdom, despite God warning him much earlier that the Babylonians were a threat. Hezekiah thought he was partnering with an ally, but he's actually helping the enemy case the joint. Hezekiah is faithful until he's not. He trusts God, but he's often making backup plans. But now, in the face of one crisis, and with another looming, who is the object of Hezekiah's trust has never been more important. In the face of trouble, in the face of disappointment, when there are even seemingly, seemingly substantive reasons not to believe in the promise of God, where do you go? That's the key question view, actually, for the whole of Isaiah. We'll point into that right back in chapter 10. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? To whom will you run for help? These four chapters actually, I think, a bit of a case study that answer that question, that help us work through that question, if you dare. And what we see is three things. We see the erosion of trust, the expression of faith, and the trustworthiness of God. So first we see the erosion of trust. Let's pick up at chapter 36, verse 4. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? So this is the enemy, King Sennacherib, systematically uh, seeking to erode any basis for confidence that God's people might have in defeating Assyria. We see that Hezekiah had three main sources, potential sources for confidence. They were Egypt, himself, and the Lord. And what we see is that the enemy challenges those one by one. So are you depending on Egypt? Well, Sennacherib's field commander says, Egypt, there, verse 6, a splintered reed of a staff which pieces the hand of anyone who leans on it. That is, they're not coming. Are you depending on yourselves? The field commander says, in effect, in verse 8, well, let's make a bargain. Let's make a deal. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. But you can't. Well, then are you depending on the Lord? The enemy says in verse 7, well, didn't Hezekiah remove all the altars? That must mean you have no place to worship, to ask for help. And even if you could go to the Lord, and this is really the kicker in verse 10, haven't we, the Assyrians, been told by the Lord himself to march against you and destroy you? 
on what are you basing this confidence of yours? Egypt? Seriously. Yourselves? Please. The Lord? He's on our side. And to make matters worse, you'll note in verse 11 that the Assyrian officials are not speaking Aramaic. Aramaic was a bit like the diplomatic language of the day. But they're speaking in Hebrew so that everyone who is sitting on the wall that is within earshot can hear the words, understand what they're saying in order to strike fear into their hearts, in order to shift their trust away from Hezekiah and from Hezekiah's Lord. That's the goal. So note verse 14. This is what the king says. So this is an earshot of everyone. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So this is in many ways uh, master manipulation. But it's actually how so often the enemy still works today. Using a mix of truth and lie to destabilise our confidence in order to shift us from the Lord. Yes, trusting in Egypt was going to end in disaster. The Lord had warned of that. Yes, trusting in themselves was going to be perilous. The Lord had warned of that too. Yes, Hezekiah had removed all the altars, but that wasn't an act of that was an act of obedience, not defiance. It was to help people put a stop to the worshipping of false gods and said, only worship the true Lord at the temple. And as far as the Lord being on the Assyrian side, well, the Lord may have been using them as an instrument of his judgment, but Assyrians make no mistake, the Lord is not on your side. So it's really important for us to see what is happening here. The enemy seeds dissatisfaction which gives cause to doubt and then provides an opportunity to defect or to drift from the Lord. Dissatisfaction, doubt, defection. The enemy uses the same tactics today. We'll we'll barrage us with uh, such things, but often it takes the form of a quiet whisper, seeking for us to be dissatisfied with our, our circumstances. Just look how bad things are of what you could have, of how much better it is for other people. That it might give rise to doubt, that we would doubt in God's record, that we would doubt in who God is, that he is not the one who can get us from here to where we need to be. That that would then cause us to defect, that we drift away from the Lord that we would put our trust in anyone or anything else except for him. And so we continue to read in verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah, you know, the one for whom you'll end up eating excrement and drinking your urine. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. 
that each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come to take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Dissatisfaction, doubt, defection. The same pattern can play out in our own lives as well. Uh, Dissatisfaction can, of course, come in many forms, in many ways. Unfulfilled longings, trouble, unanswered questions can all lead us to feel dissatisfied. And, of course, whilst there might be longings that are right, trouble that is wrong, and questions that are good, it's when we make the fulfilment of those longings or the avoidance of that trouble or the answer to those questions the basis for our confidence that can cause us to start looking elsewhere other than to God. It can give us cause to doubt that God is good or that God will deliver. The enemy loves that. And of course, it can happen in subtle ways too. It's often not dramatic defection, but subtle drifting of trusting God in one area of our lives, but making backup plans or compromises elsewhere. On Friday night, it was really great here as we had the charge youth group appreciation dessert night that it was really wonderful to hear from some of our high schoolers. And as they shared, they shared of some of the struggles that they encounter as they seek to live out their faith in the context of school. Many shared that it's really hard to live that faith out at school because not only can they feel alone, but they can feel regularly ridiculed for what they believe. You know, disappointments and doubts can come in many forms, not just when it's bad, but when things are good, on many front lines. They can come from outside of us, but also from within us. But it's all from the enemy. How Hezekiah knew that. So how does he respond? What resources did he, do we, have at our disposal? We see the expression of faith. Hezekiah goes to the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 37. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. So Hezekiah doesn't run off to the Egyptians. He doesn't launch a military recruitment campaign. He goes to the Lord. In fact, as he tore his clothes and he puts on sackcloth, it's an act of lament and of repentance. It's actually the most wonderful encouragement for us that when we find ourselves dissatisfied, ridiculed or under threat, perhaps convicted that we've been hedging our trust away from the Lord, that we can run to him that we can go to him, we can seek his face. And when the second warning arrives to Hezekiah, it happens in multiple waves, and this time in the form of a letter from King Sennacherib, that Jerusalem will be conquered, that's the threat, Hezekiah once again goes to the Lord. He prays. In, in fact, he takes the letter up to the temple. We see it's the most amazing image. And he spreads it out before the Lord 
uh, in the temple in prayer. It must have been quite a lengthy letter because he spreads it out on the floor in front of the Lord. And so we continue in verse 16. This is his prayer. With the letter spread out, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. So you can see that it's quite incredible that Hezekiah's prayer here has actually very little to do with his own circumstances, but also almost everything to do with God's character and God's concerns. So God's character, that he alone is the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. He made heaven and the earth. It's all about God's concerns, saying it's not, it's not I, Hezekiah, who ultimately has been ridiculed, but you, Lord. My concern is not for my own cause, but that your name, Lord, would be known. Hezekiah's prayer is all about God's character and God's concerns. It instantly reminds me of the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be your name, your will be done, your kingdom come. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can't go to God, it's, that it's wrong to go to God with our petition and our pleas. But see what Hezekiah is doing. Hezekiah already knows God's promises. God promised that he would deliver a remnant. God promised that the Assyrians would be defeated. And therefore, in the face of this threat, with the seeds of dissatisfaction and doubt and the temptation to defect, all that Hezekiah needs to keep doing is to recall who God is, to recall what God has done, that Hezekiah might have the confidence to cling to the Lord. The solution is not for him to muster up more strength. The antidote to dissatisfaction is to recall and experience how satisfying God is. The antidote to doubt is to be reminded of God's track record. The antidote to drifting is to just cling on to God even if it's with our fingertips. We keep on coming to the Lord. We, we spread our life before him. We recall who he is. We rest in that truth. And, you know, the more we do that, the more second nature it will become in the times when our faith is most in flux. Kelly Capek in his uh, book, You're Only Human, offers, I think, the most wonderfully simple pattern of, of nightly prayer. It's, it's really helped me uh, to keep on spreading my life before the Lord and to keep clinging to the Lord. The pattern, nightly, is, is very simple. It is to review, remember, 
rest. That is, review is to look back on the day, so saying sorry and giving thanks. Remember, that is to recall some aspects of truth of who God is, his nature, his character, his promises, his track record. And then to rest in the knowledge that the day is done, it can be laid at the feet of God, that our sins are forgiven, and we can rest in that. So review, remember, and rest. And I love it because not only do I feel like less of a fraud when I fall asleep in the third part of that prayer, of the rest part, that seems like an authentic honouring of the prayer, but when I review my day, not only do aspects of confession and gratitude surface and bubble up that might otherwise go unacknowledged, but when I bring all of that, the joys, the sorrows, the disappointments, the doubts, and drive them into remembering who God is and what he's done, the natural consequence is that my dependence on him grows. It silences the whispers of the enemy. I find it so gritty and real. And it makes a way for peace, even amidst dissatisfaction and doubt, because it punctuates my day with another opportunity to recall the trustworthiness of God. Because he is trustworthy. Verse 33, chapter 37. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he has came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. God promised that they would not enter the city, and that promise held true. The Assyrians, they just thought the Lord was one God amongst many, just a wooden altar or a stone image. But Hezekiah, and we can know that God is the living God. Here Hezekiah is, often inclined to to hedge his bets and having one Lord, one hand on the Lord and one hand clinging elsewhere, but now under threat in the face of the most difficult circumstances, Hezekiah trusted the Lord. He trusted that the Lord would sort it, and he did. Do you know, Hezekiah didn't have to do a thing. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that we can be passive all the time. Of course, God involves us. But it was at this moment Hezekiah had to completely demonstrate his dependence on God. There were really still tough times ahead. The Babylonians would very soon be at their door. But it was this event, this rescue, that would give them confidence to stand firm in the Lord going forward. That when they were in exile that they would be able to recall that just as God did what he said he would do here, that they could take great comfort 
that God would be equally true to the future deliverance that he had promised. In the face of dissatisfaction and doubt, it would give them the confidence not to defect or drift, but to depend on God. It's actually why that even in these circumstances that Psalm 46 could be written and that the words could be sung, God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. When our trust in the Lord is being eroded, being nibbled at around the edges, the best possible way to express our faith is to delight in the trustworthiness of God. The missionary, Hudson Taylor, who spent many decades in China, having arrived there in 1853, throughout his life suffered from uh, depression. He lost his wife when she was just 33. And actually, all four of his children died at a very young age. He experienced serious illness, yet even amidst all the struggles, he demonstrated an incredible trust in the Lord. It wasn't always easy, and it certainly didn't always look pretty. And on one occasion, when he was translating, persevering with the translating of the Bible from English into Mandarin, he recalls a massive time of struggle when he came to Mark chapter 11, verse 22, of Jesus' words, of Jesus' commandment to have faith in God. When Hudson came upon this, not only did he wonder really what does it mean to have faith, but he actually began to doubt that such faith was even possible. The moment of change happened when he realised that faith was far less to do without the strength of our conviction and more about clinging to the faithfulness of God. It was that realisation, he said, that totally transformed his life. Because when it's about God's faithfulness, we have the most phenomenal grounds to be confident. Paul, in the letter to the Romans in chapter 8, puts it like this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. What is the basis of this confidence of yours? In the face of dissatisfaction and doubt, it cannot be on the strength of others. It cannot be on the strength of ourselves, but simply on the faithfulness of God. That the one who promised to send the ultimate king and did will again be faithful to his word and that King Jesus will return. That's to whom we cling. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much that it's in Jesus. We so clearly see 
can rejoice and delight in clinging to your faithfulness. We thank you so much that it's in Jesus that we can indeed see that you are worthy of our trust. So Lord, we ask us this day, please, would you help us to cling to you? Please help us, Lord, that we would not be swayed by dissatisfaction nor doubt, but that we would delight in the truth of who you are, of what you've done, with the sure confidence that you will indeed do what you have promised to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.